Well, that was an excellent song choice, Mark, to lead us and prepare us to come into this passage in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. We come to a very sobering passage, and it's a, it's a weighty matter to consider, um, and yet it, it ends in a magnificent and glorious way as Jesus raises a, a widow's son. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking in verses 11 through 17. And in a, a psychological journal article titled, The Effects of the Death of a Child on Parents' Adjustment in Midlife, opens with the following statements, and it's fairly lengthy, but this is just the opening paragraph. Each year, over 50,000 U.S. children die. The death of a child is one of the most painful events that an adult can experience and is linked to complicated traumatic grief reactions. For parents, the dissolution of the attachment relationship with the child elicits severe anxiety and other negative emotions associated with loss. Parents might also experience guilt about having been unable to protect the child. Furthermore, because the death of a child defies the expected order of life events, many parents experience the event as a challenge to basic existential assumptions. And the, and the article just goes on and on about the trials and challenges. The, the loss of, the, of, a, of a child is one of the greatest griefs that anyone can experience. And Jesus in the previous passage, has just healed the centurion's servant who was on his deathbed but not quite dead. And remember, it was a great act of faith on the centurion's part to trust that Jesus didn't even have to go into his home. Jesus could just speak the word and he knew that his servant would be healed. And yet here we find that this man is already dead. And so all sorrow, in one sense, is a reminder that we live in a fallen world. And the sadness is the result of, of sin. It wasn't the way God created it. Uh, but man's fall into sin ensured that sorrow and pain would be an ever-present reality for us. And so I think the, the main point I want to get across from this passage is that only Jesus can replace the despair of death with the hope of life. Right, and we see it here in an example, a very physical example of, of resurrection, but we also see it in our own lives through that spiritual resurrection hope that we've already seen that gives us confidence that we too will experience a physical resurrection uh, when Christ returns. So before we read this passage, let's ask for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. It is a, a heavy passage, and and a, and a weighty scene in the ministry of Jesus. Many tears, um, but, the, but the passage concludes with great hope. And so, Lord, maybe, maybe this sorrow is, is not something that we are presently experiencing, or maybe for some of us it is. It is a very recent pain. But, Lord, we know that ultimately... Our hope can only be found in you. 
and the life that you've promised. And so, Father, we ask that you would remind us of that from this passage this afternoon. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me, read with me Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples uh, and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll see this, as we often do, in three sections in this sermon. We'll break this passage down. It's a short passage, but there are three different sections to it. And the opening scene is this funeral procession, verses 11 and 12. He's just healed the centurion's servant, and it says, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain. We don't really know precisely where that, where that is. It's, it's an unknown location, but obviously not far from where he was. Um, and he's got a crowd following him wherever he goes. And then he's met with this procession, this funeral procession that's taking place, which also has a great crowd from the town accompanying the mother. And so this young man would have been laid upon a, a pallet, wrapped in cloth. It's not, you're not thinking of a coffin here. This is just a, a wooden pallet probably with, with the young man wrapped in cloth. Um, and the procession is, is heading toward their family burial plot, which was most likely nothing more than a small cave where the father's bones, the father and husband's bones have already been um, folded into this bone box and placed aside so that the shelf is now open for for the, the woman's son to be placed. And there would be loud sounds of wailing. In fact, at this time, it was common, and even for the poor, to hire professional mourners. Um, it wasn't because they, needed, they, they just wanted to make an elaborate scene, but it was, in fact, a mercy to the mother who would have been weeping and wailing in a way that no one else would have related to. And so they had someone who essentially was hired to wail as well, to, to wail and cry aloud. It was an act of, of grace and mercy upon the family to, to have that. So it would have been very common and, and there would have been loud shouts of wailing. Um, and as long, along with that, there would have been some people with ointment and spices ready to pour them onto the, the body in order to offset um, the smell of decomposition. R.C. Sproul points out that even in the case of a very poor person, 
Uh, so the rabbinic tradition tells us at least two people would have been playing flutes and one professional wailing woman were expected to accompany the funeral procession. But in this case, we know this wasn't just, it probably wasn't a poor family because a large crowd has gathered. Now, they may just be full of compassion and maybe she was poor, but more than likely, there's even, it's an, a more elaborate ceremony in, in her case um, with additional instruments at, at play and, and um, additional mourners on the scene. And it would have been a cust- the custom for the mother to be in the front, to walk in front of the bier so that the first person Jesus sees is this mother, this woman wailing. And we learn that she was a widow and that this was her only son. Uh, and he, he was her child, but it says he's a man. Right? It doesn't say, it's not, we're not to picture this, this, a small body. This is a, at least a, a young man, um, the word that's used there in the Greek, uh, it's, it's not implying that this is a, a little child. But it is still her only child. And she has no husband. So this child is, is likely her sole caretaker, her sole provider. She doesn't know what she's going to do after this. And so she was in a very distressing situation, to say the least. And Scripture attests to her circumstances as being some of the most difficult that anyone would face. And, and we see even modern psychology agrees with this, that this is some of the most painful experiences anyone could go through. Jeremiah 6.26 said, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. So as he calls Israel to repentance, as Jeremiah calls his people to repentance, he says, put yourself in the position of of someone mourning for their only son. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So mourning at at the death of a loved one is is never easy, but mourning over the death of an only son or an only child after, in this case, after she has already had to mourn the death of her husband uh, places her in a need of generous compassion. And one of the most difficult funerals I've ever attended was for some friends in seminary. It was about a year after we began attending seminary, and they had a daughter who was born with a, a fatal disease. They didn't have hope that she would live very long, and she did live for um, several months, if I recall. Um, but it was an absolutely crushing service that the entire student body attended, uh, full of tears. And as we watched this young couple bury their first and only child, since then they've gone on to have other children, uh, but we sung praises to God for his mysterious hand of providence. We acknowledged his compassionate love that would not let this family go. 
And so even now, I rarely sing that song, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go, without remembering that family and that particular funeral service. We sang this, Oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. And what do you say to those who are under this kind of distress? Everything feels inadequate. But this song reflects upon that hope And this passage reveals the confidence we can have in the hope of the resurrection. It's the only thing that makes situations like this bearable. You certainly can't say much. I think your words should be few at a funeral like that. But apart from resurrection hope, literally everything else we would say would be inadequate. And so that's exactly what they needed to hear, was that resurrection hope. Talking to the father months later, I can remember, his name was Noah, he he was telling me, or I was telling him, kind of confessing, "I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't even have a clue what to tell you or what to say, how to, how to give you comfort, but we do have that resurrection hope. And he was like, that's, that's it, that's, that's all we needed to hear. And it was enough. Right? He assured me that reflecting upon our resurrection hope is the only thing that, that really helped them through that time. And so typically, Jesus healed those who approached him with the request for healing. Right? He waits to see their faith, um, like he did with the, the centurion here in the previous passage. You could almost have the impression that Jesus was waiting for people to initiate him before he was willing to apply his healing word and touch. But in this case, the, this widow's hopes had been dashed. They'd been crushed to the point where she couldn't have had any clue who was walking towards her and that he had the power, really resurrection power, uh, to raise her son to life. All right, so that's how this scene opens. And I think it's important that we get into that picture into that scene and we feel the weight of the scenario and, and, and see the tears on the faces of, of this great crowd that's following this woman, hear the, the wailing taking place, hear the sound of the flutes. And we've seen and, and experienced very similar things, but this was a, a, an incredible scene taking place where Jesus is now going to enter into that funeral possession and do something that probably no one had ever seen before. <laughs> I mean, definitely that no one had ever seen before, but even just that first initial interference of going in and telling them to stop. No one does that, but Jesus does. He goes to the woman and he even tells her, stop weeping. Again, these people would have been filled with probably anger, irritation at this person who's coming and, and putting a halt to the procession. 
Like, how can you be so heartless? And yet Jesus knows what he's about to do. There in verses 13 through 15. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So it, again, it was the, the custom for the mother to walk in front of the bier, and Jesus knows that he is about to heal this man. But you have to imagine his request would have felt very out of place. And isn't it interesting here that, that Jesus does what no one else was willing or able to do? Why don't those in our day and age who, who claim to have the same gift of healing, why don't you ever find them at funerals? Why don't you ever find them at hospitals? The kind of healing ministry that Jesus had is utterly unique. And Jesus raises this man with a simple command for him to sit up, and the man does it. He sits up, and he starts to speak. Again, the the shock and the horror, there would have been terror on the faces of people. As the, the cloth is still around his body, probably falling off as he's speaking. And this is the first of three different resurrection miracles and in, in Luke chapter 8, so next chapter, we'll find um, Jesus rising J- Jairus' daughter to life, and he does the same in John 11 for Lazarus. Another side note here, if you want the details of what these individuals experienced while they were dead, you won't find their explanation in Scripture. I think that's that's a, a bit of a warning to us, right? If you really want an explanation of what it's like when someone has died and then been brought back to life, I know you can turn to the New York Times bestseller list, but you won't find these words in Scripture from those who, who it truly happened to. And so this morning we looked at Isaiah 53.3, which speaks of how Jesus was despised and rejected by his own people, And in the next verse, we see that he would also be filled with compassion for those who were and are in circumstances like this woman. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God, and afflicted. So seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus not only knows and understands what we experience, but he actually fills them in his humanity. He knows, he he bears our griefs and our sorrows. He knows precisely what we need because he himself was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so do you have that resurrection hope? Do you have that assurance that all of your present sorrows and pains will be removed and that Christ will usher us into the new heavens and the new earth where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death? 
You may not be in a place of deep distress or sorrow right now, but you will be. Right? It's inevitable for all of us. And so listen to these promises for those times when you will need to not only hear them, but know them to be true. Isaiah 26, 19, we read, Your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. John 5, 28 to 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so these glorious promises are for you who have placed your hope in Christ alone for your salvation. Right? They should be upon our minds and our hearts often so that whenever we do experience these griefs that, that life brings, we can be all the more hopeful of the peace and joy that awaits. Right? And so we, br- we do see a brief and temporary picture of that heavenly transformation that takes place in the response of the crowd, right? There's this transformation from weeping and mourning to worship, well, fear and worship. The people went from mourning the death of this man to being filled with fear as they began to worship Jesus. This isn't a terrifying fear. It's a fear uh, and awe. They're, They're standing in amazement at what they've just witnessed. And so they had no option, really, but to worship him, to recognize his power, to honor him. One commentator says, the whole funeral procession goes wild with astonishment, delight, disbelief. They don't know which one to look at, the no longer dead boy, his amazed and ecstatic mother, or this stranger who has done what the old prophets Elijah and Elisha used to do. Luke has told the story with deliberate echoes of 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. And so another commentator points out T.L. Brody. He gives a list of the following parallels between this scene here and the scenes of Elijah and Elisha uh, with with resurrection power. He says this, First of all, a widow is the main character in 1 Kings 17, as well as here. The death of her son, um, the meeting of the widow at the gate of the city, the statement he gave him to his mother, almost a direct quote from 1 Kings 17, and then this acclamation that, first of all, the acclamation, a great prophet has arisen among us. Uh, it resembles the reading of 1 Kings 17, 24. You are the prophet of the Lord. So you have this deliberate parallel 
to the prophets of old. They, they recognize him as a prophet, but he was so much more. And unfortunately, it does appear that this crowd's response is short-lived, that they don't understand the depth of, of who this is. This crowd probably saw Christ's resurrection power as the beginning of, their, of him getting ready to lead Israel back into a time of prosperity and military might. And so they're, they were looking, looking much lower than he intended for them to look. Well, a funeral procession in Nain places us in this somber mood as we recognize the widow is mourning over the death of her only son. Right? And we sense her pain and we feel inadequate to say or do anything that might give her hope. And then we see the unthinkable happen as Jesus comes onto the scene and provides the only hope that any of us have in the face of death, right? a resurrection hope. And then there's this transformation among all those who are mourning. Those who wept alongside this woman are now filled with fear and worship. And we have this example of Christ's resurrection power given to us so that we might be filled with an increasing sense of, of assurance that he not only has the power to resurrect our mortal bodies, as he does here in this scene, but really that he has the power to do the greater work of redeeming our dead souls from the power and penalty of sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In John 5, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Right, so we conclude with that hope. Those are the promises that we're called to believe in now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you not only for this picture here of